Welcome back to The Profitable Python. I'm your host, Ben McNeil, and on this episode, you will meet Stephen Lau. Stephen has been programming since computers were large, expensive, and rare. He started using Python in the previous millennium on a variety of projects. He's written a few books about Python and also likes sailboats. Stephen, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Ben. This is great. Yeah, I'm glad to have you here. The first question I have for you is, what similarities do you see between sailing the Atlantic and sailing the seas of big data and the, of the world that we live in? <laughs> the, I, the, the big comparison between um, sailing and big data is exploration. Mm. You may think you know about sailing or you may think you know about a particular river or anchorage or creek. And I live here by the Chesapeake Bay and there are some creeks that Oh, well, last year this was all silted up and you couldn't get in, but this year you can. Ooh. <laughs> and so the same thing is true when you're dealing with, with big enterprise data problems is, oh, well, this didn't work for them, but they have a slightly different set of customer constraints than the mm. other folks do. So this sort of pandas data frame wouldn't work for them but it will work for these other guys, different scale, different problem, different machine learning models. It's all exploration. Cool. I'm glad I use that as the icebreaker. I feel like we are on a roll already. <laughs> uh, what captivated your attention about programming and why did you never leave? Well, that's awkward because, you know, having been doing this for 40 odd years, uh, it, it does occasionally come up like, like, don't you want to be like a manager or a chief technology officer or something like that? Yeah. But, but programming is about exploration. Have I mentioned this earlier? <laughs> I don't want to sound like it's a broken record here, but the exploring, um, you know, new algorithms and new data structures is still a thing, even at my vast age, but exploring mm. the new problem domains, this is where it gets really, really interesting. So recently I, I, I work, you know, for Capital One, we're a, a big bank. Um, mostly we do a lot of technology stuff. And so we're starting to commercialize some of our technology offerings. Some is open source, some is commercial, some is a commercial adaptation of open source. Mm. The amount of learning involved in being able to commercialize a good idea, it's like being 22 all over again. Wait, <laughs> what, we have to do this? He's a lawyer, I have to talk to him? This is all... Everything's new. It's fabulous. Yeah. Oh, that's that's awesome. I I knew I was going to sneak this in, but I didn't know when. But I'm going for it now. Learning is hard. So how do we <laughs> how do we navigate these waters? I mean, this is uh, I don't know why the waters thing came up. It's just a natural. <laughs> yeah, this is a sailboat episode, everybody. Okay. <laughs> it, and, and and I'm down with that because uh, I lived on a sailboat for two years. But the, the learning is hard is really important in the software realm because you've got two things to learn about, the users and their problem domain and the technology. And you may think you got a good grip on the technology and then you discover that the users have this whole weird world and they use their own words and you have to meet them where they are or they're never going to use your software. And similarly, you may think you understand the problem domain. And like I say, I work for a big bank. And so we have lots and lots of bankers that really deeply understand finance and risk and credit cards and money and where the money comes from and where the money goes to. 
but you look at their pandas data frame and you're like, um, do you know how math works? Like <laughs> add, and then you realize, oh wait, no, they're dealing with credit risk numbers, not financial balances. Oh, I'm the idiot here. Wait, wait, <laughs> let me just take back everything I said about your code. I didn't understand the problem domain. And then, you know, the, the bunch of you all come together eventually to understand the problem. But the learning is hard because you've got yeah. two unrelated aspects, problem and technology. Mm, excellent. Well said. So uh, what would you consider your first success as a software developer? <laughs> My first success as a software developer, this reaches back to uh, often before many of our listeners were born. This is 19 excellent. and 8. Uh, that would be, you know, 40 years ago. But what happened was I was working with some cost accountants and I wrote a little piece of software that would pull general ledger data out and do some computations because of the way costs were allocated. Some things were allocated by the hour. Some things were allocated by the pound of raw metal and, you know, things like that. All these different computations. Mm. Put this COBOL program in. 17 years later, that's a one and a seven, <laughs> 17 years later, they call me up and say, well, we're getting a new general ledger at the factory and we need to look at the software. What, you know, so I went and, and looked briefly at this handwritten, handwritten notes. It was 1980. <laughs> the word processor had not been invented yet. This software had been in production 17 years doing what is really a spreadsheet computation to allocate numbers by hour or by pound or by machine tool used and stuff like that. And I said, really folks, it's a spreadsheet. <laughs> and they're like, wait, you like invented the spreadsheet in 1980? <laughs> yeah, but was I Dan Bricklin? Did I put it on an Apple II? No, I wrote it in COBOL on a mainframe <laughs> like a <God>. dummy. <laughs> But 17 years in production without too many problems. And wow. um, and they had to call me up and say, you know, what what really does this do under the hood? It's a mm. spreadsheet. <laughs> oh, that's that's hilarious. It kind of reminded me of the, there's like some story about the everything bagel. Like a few <laughs> years ago, some people came out saying like, no, I'm the inventor of the everything bagel. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Great. Yep. Great. Thanks. Thanks for sharing. <laughs> My brother-in-law's father invented pasta salad. Yeah. Everybody's got their story. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's, that's great though. I, I really, I really love uh, that you shared that. That's awesome. <laughs> uh, what do you recommend that doesn't take too much effort, but solves like 80% of the challenge of writing good software? Ooh, that doesn't take too much effort. See, that's a heck of a qualifier. Um, I believe actually the the big thing that you need to write really good software is um, permission to fail mm. because writing good software right down the road. I mean, I've written a bunch of books. I show examples and the examples all make it seem like you should be able to do this too, just like I did. No, yeah. it took me weeks to come up with that example. And that's just a <laughs> textbook example. That's not even real stuff we do at work. Um, right. So you, it's hard to, when you look at a real problem and then think of what you read in a book and say, gosh, I'm so dumb. No, mm. no, no, no. The book examples are so contrived. You have permission to fail. Try two or three times. And then on the third or fourth try, it'll get out. It'll be pretty good. The problem is that 
you have people buying software, managers and, you know, executive vice presidents and owners of companies that don't think that the failure is valuable, mm. that they don't see the value in the lesson learned by doing it badly and then doing it again. And that's a hard sell, but permission to fail is the best way to build good software. Screw it up a few times. The, the third time, that'll be the charm. Mm. That's that is uh, doomsday news for the perfectionists out there. What, what's what's your message to those people? Yeah, that, it's tough. <laughs> if you think you need to get it done right the first time, it's brutal. Um, I, years ago, uh, when I was a bigger participant on Stack Overflow, somebody had asked a question about how do I future proof my code so that I can write it once and it'll be good forever. Mm. And I said, if you can write it once and it's good for more than five years, that's amazing. Most oh. software is just going to be junked after five years because a better understanding of the problem domain, new group of users, your company gets acquired, nothing. I mean, my story of COBOL program lasting 17 years was because it was an isolated group of small steel mills in rural upstate New York. Mm. Um, so, you know, they weren't going to get bought. No, there's no big technology change. But if you're working at the leading edge of anything and your software lasts more than five years, it's a miracle. So don't future proof. Yeah. Your language, your framework, all those things are going to go out of um, style in a couple of years anyway. Uh, you'll change your React for Angular or your Angular for React or however that's working nowadays. And um, it, it'll all expire. So mm. being a perfection straight out of the box, I'm not sure that's helpful. <laughs> I love it. Thanks for sharing. And the um, so your Cobalt story reminded me of something else too, because that whole that whole deal of uh, messing with accounting data and reporting on these allocations or or writing yeah. the allocation engine. I work in oil and gas. Like <laughs> this is my life right now. Like th there's some things that are just timeless. The technology yeah. changes, but the application is the same. No, what no accounting. Accounting principles are forever. Yeah. How has that served you? Like it, you worked on that project years ago. Have you been able to iterate over that accounting knowledge or is it, <laughs> or is it have it, has it really served you well after that? What mostly I got out of those early, early projects, you know, 40 years ago, mm -hmm. um, <laughs> was the necessity of really meeting the users where they were trying to take action make decisions. Mm. Uh, that was what was really crucial about it because automated processing, meh, that, that comes and goes. But what a user has to decide, that's the thing that is eternal and timeless and the focus of software is what the person needs to know what decision they make, what action they're going to take. Mm -hmm. And so that whole cost allocation thing, is we doing it by pound of steel or are we doing it by the big machine in the back of the factory that hardly anybody uses and we want to put a lot of cost on that? Or are we doing it by hour on the machines that are cheap? These are difficult decisions. Somebody in accounting or the CEO or somebody is deciding these things, mm -hmm. you know, to spread the costs out, to spread the risk out, to do a favor for a customer. I don't really know. But mm -hmm. that flexibility that was the real, it turns out the real win with that. Yeah. Huh. Cool. Yeah. I'm this is this, so far, this has been so rewarding. Thanks for sharing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so um, back, so that question I shared with you about the 80% uh, mm -hmm. that's not too difficult. Let me invert that a little bit and ask you, what do you think is overly difficult, especially for a beginner that maybe they should 
avoid when starting out trying to write good software? Ooh, ooh. Um, boy, the avoid thing is so, so touchy. Um, mm-hmm. Some people get really tired of writing like unit tests, but no, you really can't avoid those. They're, they're essential. Mm. Um, and one of the things that bugs me personally, just because I'm old, is um, cloud deployments. Um, Capital One is all in in the cloud. Everything that we have runs in the cloud. We're a bank. So the security implications of running everything in the cloud is towering. So you don't just deploy something. No, 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 no. There's people, there's committees making sure that whatever you deploy is really going to not leak any information to anybody. So it is very difficult to get some of those things done. And I find that exasperating, but that's just me. For a Mm. new programmer, you really have to embrace those cloud deployments. That's really crucial. Um, Mm. I suspect strongly the thing you hinted at earlier perfectionism may be the thing that you it it makes stuff overly difficult that if you're looking for perfect that's maybe the wrong thing to focus on Mm, awesome yeah that's i'm i'm so excited to to hear other people (laughs) talking this language thank you (laughs) uh okay so i was curious what are some new platforms or languages that you see on the horizon that excite you um, or, or are you just drinking Python Kool-Aid like crazy? <laughs> <laughs> I, I am a big drinker of Python Kool-Aid. That is, that is absolutely true. Um, um, we, uh, because we're doing uh, cloud deployments, the question is, and we tend to use a fair amount of Amazon services. So of the Amazon services, which are the best ones? All these things are hard and the horizon moves quickly. Uh, the Google Compute Platform, every two weeks, there's some new thing out there. We got to figure out what and how and who and where. And oh my goodness, yeah. uh, the, the pace of change is really, really difficult f- for me mm-hmm. to keep a grip on. And so th- that is um, that idea of what's important on the horizon. I got to say, I'm just bewildered watching it all fly by me. Um, yeah. it, it, <laughs> it's like me sitting in a powerboat. I lived on a sailboat. Sailboats go, my sailboat goes seven and a half knots. You say, Steve, what's a knot? <laughs> it's about miles per hour. If you can run a 5K in 20 minutes, you run as fast as my boat can go. Laws of physics as fast as my boat can go. Without going <laughs> over a waterfall, I am not going any faster than that. <laughs> Sitting in a powerboat gives me the willies. The world is mm. flying by at maybe like 10 miles an hour. I mean, powerboats are, <laughs> <laughs> it's not like automobiles going 60 miles an hour, but yeah. the whole going over the water at high speed, oh, bewildering. And the same thing with cloud computing. It's coming at me at a high speed. Oh, bewildering. <laughs> yeah, I, I feel the same way. And it's so... Uh, there's going to be some other questions in here where, where it'll crop up, but pretty much like you need, uh, I was reading through your pre-interview form and y- you were talking about how uh, working, when you go to work for companies, you want to work at ones that are more on like the cutting edge than like these legacy things. But it's like, oh, it, there's just so much to learn, but yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> um. Okay. So uh, I was curious what, what is it that makes you so damn prolific with your content creation? You've got like blogs going up the yin yang. You've got 
so many books and you're a course creator as well. What is this uh, gene that you have in your body? <laughs> um, the, the, the big deal with content creation is it's winter. And mm. so the amount of hours spent sailing in the dead of winter in the Chesapeake is, you know, a big old zero here. Okay. So <laughs> uh, I guess I might as well, you know, respond to a book proposal. And, you know, while I'm at it, all the things that couldn't make it into the book are either going to have to be blog posts or maybe I'll snapshot a bunch of these things and pitch the whole show uh, to LinkedIn Learning so we can maybe make a course out of that. Uh, mm. I'm not as good at the LinkedIn learning thing because it's I find it so much more demanding than writing a book because you then have to read it and be personable and charming mm. and get your recordings done in a timely fashion without too many screw-ups and that I just oh Oh, it's, you can't just backspace. You, you got to like yeah. go back a slide and reread the entire thing. Can I just backspace the mistake out? I mm. said the wrong word. <laughs> word. Oh. Yeah. Can I take the backspace out? I said the wrong word. Oh, I did it again. <laughs> yep. Oh, by the way, there's no redos on this podcast. This is yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's that's FM a- radio. It's live. <laughs> Oh, that's awesome, man. So, uh, yeah, this is a little unscripted, but would you, are you a programmer in a sailor's body or, or is it the other way around? <laughs> what, what is this? I came to pre- sailing actually fairly late in life. So okay. uh, I, I'm a sailor in a programmer's body, Okay, but it's the learning new things part of sailing that absolutely fascinated me. And um, mm. I, I sort of, you know, at first blush, you know, you're making the boat move, whatever. It's got some sails. It floats in the water. How hard can it be? Oh, wait, you're actually, it's a wing, it's a vertical wing, and there's actually a hydrodynamic wing under the water, the keel, Mm. and there's the rudder, which is another hydrodynamic wing. So I've got aerodynamic forces and hydrodynamic, oh my goodness, it was, it, um, yeah, it was fun, (laughs) and continues to be. (laughs) So you can get nerdy about this real quick, it sounds like. Oh, don't even get me started. <laughs> oh, yeah. wait, here we are. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, that's great. Oh, okay. I didn't know where to throw this question in, so I just had to go for it. With respect to data warehousing, how much of the Kimball method do you think is still relevant? And is there some sort of body of work out there that's teaching how to do data warehousing in, in 2020 and beyond? I actually think the Kimball approach to having uh, a pretty reasonably crisply defined star schema is still of considerable value. But, but when that stuff was, was starting out, computers were large and expensive and, Mm. and not completely rare. We had more than one server, but you were biased toward trying to get a ton of stuff done on a fairly limited platform where you were competing for resources against production transactions. Mm. Nowadays, it's not quite the same thing because I have databases that'll mirror the data automatically. Uh, You know, an AWS DynamoDB, I've got data in two places. I can make my warehouse out of the other data without standing on my head like I used to have to in the olden (laughs) days. And spinning off data 
marts. We used to argue a lot about how big and how many and who owns the process for creating data marts. Meh, give them a pandas data frame and let them grind away at it. Who even cares? Oh, it's a terabyte of data. Okay, so buy them a big cloud server with a terabyte of space on it. They only need it for three days. So you'll no. multiply it out and you say a server that big times three days. And yeah, $85,000, we're done with it. Solved. I don't need to spend any more software time on it. Just turn it over to the analysts, let them do their stuff, and then decommission it when they're done doing their analytical work. Hmm. It so completely changes the way we look at it. Crazy. So would you say, would you say that people doing like the modern... Uh, data, uh, modern data professionals, can they be uh, successful without even knowing what the hell a Kimball method is? Or do they, or is it some kind of like foundational stuff that they should know, but they should put more emphasis on learning to do this, these uh, workloads in the cloud? Like I'm just trying to, I'm asking for a friend here. Yeah. <laughs> I believe that the Kimball <laughs> approach is still uh, valuable when you're tackling the big central enterprise scale problems, but not all problems are big enterprise scale problems. Some of them are mm. just big, but it's because you got a lot of history or it's big because it's a large subset of customers, but does it really deserve the full scrutiny of a bunch of database designers working up a sophisticated star schema model, or can you just cut corners and pile this stuff all up into a pandas data frame and move forward with your analytical work. And I yeah. think that there's this middle ground of sort of cheap shabby data warehouses that come and go. Yeah. Um, what you wind up with when you do that, though, is you wind up with a welter of um, data of nebulous origin, nebulous provenance. You don't really know the processing history behind that data. And eventually, you're going to grow to not like it. Mm -hmm. So the more disciplined data modeling, data provenance, and that kind of stuff is eventually going to be necessary. But a lot of times you should solve the problem first and then decide if we need to keep the data, mm. then let's resolve the problem. We'll count the first one as a semi-failure. No, no, no. It was successful. We solved the problem, but it didn't have the legs to live for a long time. So it's a failure, but it was successful. Yeah. because we used it. We made money off of it. We, you know, did a marketing campaign that made us $50 million. So it may have been a garbage spreadsheet, but at the end of $50 million, I'm willing to put up with a lot of garbage spreadsheet. <laughs> yeah, that that's excellent. Do you, do you have any like learning resources that you would recommend for, for this or or maybe this is the topic of your next book. I don't know. No, I'm afraid. <laughs> I'm always afraid to dive into the warehousing thing nowadays. Okay. Uh, I used to be more energetic about it. Um, but I think the state of the art has slipped away from me. And mm. um, because, you know, Kimball, that, that was the gold standard 20 years ago. And yeah. so, you know, I, I don't know what the gold standard is now because I, I haven't kept up with it. Mm. Yeah. Are you still there, Stephen? Yes. Oh, okay. I, there, I think there's a video lag or something like that. Oh, I, it's bad lag. Yeah. Oh, it's bad. And I, yeah. I'm in low lighting mode here because it's nighttime and it's, a, it's all good. It's all good. <laughs> um, okay, great. 
Thank you for answering that question. I uh, was super curious and I had, I had a captive audience I had to ask. So. <laughs> uh, do you see a bright future for consultants and free, freelancers in the data science space? Or do you see more of the opportunities and the money in like salary jobs? Oh, well, I, I know uh, some folks that have been creating boutique consultancies okay. in the data science space, because if you've got a particular area of expertise, either business-wise or technology-wise, ideally both, if you can apply you know, Apache Airflow to financial problems, um, I think there's niche consulting out there um, uh, where you can uh, do that for several different customers and, you know, flip back and forth, sharing best practices and things uh, mm. comfortably. Uh, I think there's um, more of that because the technology landscape has gotten so broad. Uh, when I started as a consultant, it was COBOL or um, what was the other language? Oh, that's right. COBOL uh, <laughs> were your choices. And now, yeah. oh my gosh, you know, do you know NumPy? Do you know Dask? Are you a Pandas person? Are you mm. TensorFlow? Are you PyTorch? All of those different components each requires deep expertise. And then yeah. there's the business problem. Is it risk management or, or, or what is the business problem? So, oh, I can imagine that there's a lot of space for specialized consulting. Hmm. Cool. Yeah, that's this. This is uh, one of the angles with this podcast is to really talk about this taboo thing, you know, making money with your programming skills. <laughs> and uh, so I just I love like just cracking open the can of worms on this uh, with with the guests on the show. Oh, yeah, I think it's important. And I think a lot of people wind up doing the sort of commercialization effort, you know, enterprise wide capital one is leaning in that direction, but individuals do this sometimes pretty well also where a great open source project becomes the seed for some more commercial work after that. And similarly, there are some um, internal efforts that spin off open source projects, the open source project can then be commercialized in other ways. I think there's a, a back and forth between big open source commercial efforts that involve open source. Mm. And I believe that the, 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 the best way to do that is the services around the open source offering because the intellectual property it's open source. You're not going to go very far with that right. licensing and all that kind of stuff. You're not going anywhere with that, but your expertise to customize and extend and add features and do support. This is, this is gold. Mm, yeah. I, I love what you're saying there. Cause it, between like Apache airflow for the automation stuff, which probably requires some background in like bash Python, I guess probably anything because air airflow is so modular uh, but there's also the uh, Apache superset project. I've big, I've just started looking into it. It's like a data visualization thing. Yeah. So like between those two things, I mean, you've pretty much, you're taking a, a lot of really expensive enterprise tools out at the knees uh, yep. Yep. <laughs> and just build your services around that. That's awesome. Oh yeah. Yeah. And, and the, the best part about doing that with uh, an Apache kind of thing is that the skill set required becomes a little bit generic. Mm -hmm. So you as the lead consultant, bringing in other skilled people who, well, they know airflow, but they don't know this business problem. 
this gives you a chance to put together a larger organization, which is, I believe, the diversity of skills is where you get, you know, the real money because mm. I got a DevOps person and I got a security person and I got a business consultant person. And between the four of us, we do all of the things required in the problem domain. And I think that's, that's a wonderful synergy to find. Mm, damn. That's, that's really cool. I'm glad we went there. Okay. So what do you wish you spent more time on getting good at in the early days of your software career? Oh boy, I, I wish I had spent more time finding ways to um, get agreement on difficult, gnarly problems. Mm, okay. uh, I tended to be argumentative and I was a desk thumper and uh, <laughs> stormed off in huffs and had snit fits and whatnot. I was terrible. Uh, just, mm. I believe I lost myself a fair amount of money in different consulting gigs by, by um, trying heavy handed emotional approaches that were not really beneficial. I wasn't really meeting people where they needed to make a decision with the information they needed to make that decision. That's a thing that I discovered uh, much later in life. And um, so that I believe is one of those that it's okay to be right and not have anybody understand it. Mm, that's, that is so powerful. I had I just listened to what you said and reflected. I had a conversation with a roommate one time and he said, just because you're right, doesn't mean you have to be an asshole. <laughs> and that story that you just told me, it reminded me a little bit of that. Oh yeah, yeah. I never had anybody say that to me and I wish they had because there are times when, yes, I'm right, but yeah, let it go. I, oh man, thanks, thank you so much. So let me ask you this, uh, to, to swing it on the, on the upside. Uh, once you course corrected, did, did it really, like, how did that improve your, uh, like quality of life, uh, at work or, or what have you? Actually, the, the, one of the things that helped with the course correction was taking two years off to sail up and down the U.S. East Coast All and right. see the world from outside the office space. And yeah. so <laughs> that, that, that was a big part of, of course correction there. But the other part of, of selling the ideas because coming back to the workforce, um, especially as an OG who's only getting older, the whole, I'm going to retire out of this job, it's not a career anymore for me. Mm. It's an interesting technical challenge. And if I can get these folks to see things in a way that will steer the project in a good direction, that's kind of the best I can hope for because really I'm not going to be in this company very long because I'm going to retire again. And um, <laughs> so <laughs> that, get, that gives me some latitude in saying, well, your idea is terrible, but um, here, let's talk to some other folks about a related thing and maybe you'll see the terribleness of your idea. And I don't really need to sort this all out and I don't need to be the hero on this. I just need to uh, get you folks to, to conversate a little more. Could you conversate about this? <laughs> oh, I love it. Uh, hey, uh, you must be reading my script or something because that was exactly <laughs> where I was going next. I was going to ask you, after you took your two-year sabbatical to go sailing the U.S. East Coast, how did your clarity change on what you wanted to accomplish in life? The, the, 
one of the things that that I learned as a sailor was that the ocean is really, really a lot bigger and scarier than I thought it was. You mm. start out sailing, or anyway, I started out sailing in lakes and you know freshwater lakes with surrounded by hills, so you never really see actual weather till you you get out in the ocean and then it's like holy cow this is terrifying. <laughs> and so for a long time i harbored the idea that i would maybe go to europe or my partner and i could even go you know like even around the world the boat is capable of that i got the picture in the background here of this boat the mm. boat is perfectly capable of going around the world the question is am I capable of going around the world? And the answer is nope. Uh, mm. I had all I could do to get to the Bahamas and back. So it changed my scope. Oh, wait, there's parts of this that are fun and parts of this that are scary. Let's set the scary parts aside and kind of dwell on the fun parts. So coming back to the workplace, this is the other part of that. Not all work is always fun, but there are certain scary parts that I would like to not get involved in. One of the big ones is interviewing. I spent 40 years as a consultant. I did a lot of interviews of people wanting to come in, people who had appropriate skills and inappropriate skills. And that's just terrible. I'm not good at that. And it scared me every time. I don't want to tell this person, no, they need the job. Right. On the other hand, they don't have the skills. I don't know what to do. It's mm. terrifying. Some people love that. They they thrive in that world. I realized, A, I didn't, B, I wasn't very good at it. I was never going to Europe in my boat. So uh, maybe I should not be interviewing people at all and just have somebody who's good at it do it. And I can talk to them about technology things, but don't ask me, should we hire that person? Because in my book, yes, hire them. The, they're nice people. I just talked to them for an hour. They're pleasant. They're yeah. cheerful. Um, we can teach them skills eventually. You know, <laughs> yeah. it may take months, but. <clears throat> mm, wow. That's, yeah, that's, oh, what there's, I forget who the philosopher was. It was something about like know yourself or know thyself or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Know things you're not good at and, and try to avoid doing them because that uh, and so interviewing is one of those things that I'm just terrible at and mm. because I love everybody and we always have a nice conversation and, and I just soon work with them as not work with them. They were pleasant. They were fun. Yeah. <laughs> and it, it seems like getting that that clarity was really good, really good medicine for you. It, it, like is what I'm hearing, I guess. Uh, it was it 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 um because when I was a consultant, I had to, you know, there I had to cover all three bases and and home plate too, and people were sliding um, and and mm -hmm. with their cleats up, and it was terrible. It was very scary, um, and so and narrowing the focus down to the things I could do well. Let's communicate the technical problem. Let's communicate the technical solution. Uh, I've been writing books for a while. Let me focus on on writing and making sure that um, all of your Python software has doc strings. For the love of God, learn to write a readme. This is not hard. Readme.md. Start there and write a few key things down. It won't kill you. And yeah. you hit to put it in a pull request comment. I see no doc strings in this module, but there's no, you know, and maybe I'm biased because I'm a writer, but please, your software should kind of include some hints as to why you wrote it and who it's for and what it does. Uh, you know, big picture things ought to be written down somewhere, not orbiting in your head. Yeah. Oh, man. Even, even for your future self, if you care about nobody else. 
<laughs> yes, in three months, future you at three o'clock in the morning when the bank has crashed is going to say, oh, thank God I wrote that down. <laughs> yeah, that's that is just excellent. Uh, thank you for sharing that. So uh, I was curious, um, you could go anywhere with this or we could skip this question, but I was super curious. If somebody wants to replicate that kind of sailing medicine in their life, but doesn't have access to a sailboat, what principles could they steal from your experience to get that kind of clarity on their own, in their own life? The, the, the trick with the sailing was that it was a learning experience every step of the way. Mm. Um, it, when I sort of got the bug, it was, uh, I think, a full 10 years before I had gotten my partner to the point where they were willing to even talk about it. We had a little racing sailboat. We sailed around lakes and things like that. But where my partner and I met in the middle of this was when we were sailing around the lake. And the question was, what's around that next bend? Mm. Oh, you want to explore further? Ah, I'd originally thought racing was fun. But no, wait, we can meet on this exploration thing. This will work out to my advantage over the next 10 or 15 years <laughs> as we slowly evolve through the learning process together on what do we want to do with ourselves? I mean, we mm -hmm. had a house and, you know, garage and cars and snowblowers and stuff in rural upstate New York and mm -hmm. uh, a kid who lived in Las Vegas and a kid who lived in Los Angeles. And we're wondering, why do we have a house and a snowblower in rural upstate New York? <laughs> <laughs> I, I didn't how even did this think happen? I, how did this happen? <laughs> this is not my beautiful wife. This is not my beautiful car. So the, 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 that learning slash exploration slash open up the box and look around a little bit because mm -hmm. you're often confined in, in a, a nested series of boxes. And so let's just climb out of this box and look around a little bit and say, oh, hey, I can think outside this other box too. Uh, okay, so, you know, we'll try that. So if people buy RVs, they buy campsites, they um, travel more extensively, they rent Airbnbs for months at a stretch. Um, my partner was talking about renting an Airbnb near where one of our kids lives for a solid month because, well, we can work remote. Mm. It's the 21st century. COVID slowed us down a lot on that, but it's on the books for next year that we should maybe just tell the company that I'll be doing all Zoom for the month of May and go to Los Angeles. Hmm. Oh, wait, we can. <laughs> Didn't know that before, but the sabbatical taught me that, yeah, you can. You are capable of this kind of exploration, so yeah. do it. Um, not everybody is. Not everybody's financially able. Not everybody's physically able. Not everybody's even emotionally able to take that kind of distance. Yeah. But permission to learn and permission to fail, I believe, are the two big things I got out of the sabbatical. So I just pushed the envelope through bunches of failures. Yeah. Huh. Wow. That's choose your failures wisely. I think is the, <laughs> what my partner would say. I can, I can see them standing over there saying, don't just fail randomly knucklehead. <laughs> yes, you're right. You are so Strategic. right. Strategic failures, choose something that's, you know, safe at first, something that's small, yeah. but still entails a little bit of risk. Mm, that's, that's really cool. And exploration sounds like a huge part of that because you have to be willing to kind of go out into the unknown and, 
I love it. I, I think that's a great framework. I would like to see more of that in my own life. So thanks for sharing that. It can be challenging. There, there. Right. Um, you know, like I say, we live in a bunch of, of nested boxes. Um, since I'm old, you can imagine my parents are even older, and so the elder care for parents and things is constraining. I have a grandkid, mm. so that's also constraining. So uh, we live within these things, but there's still space to explore in there. And so, you know, maybe your exploration involves um, taking up the ukulele. There's a lot of places that yeah. are that are explorable. Yeah. Oh, that's great. So just find. Find the box that where you can explore in your own box and and where the edges are and maybe look what's in the next box. Yep. I yep. love it. I love it. So uh, okay. So if you had to start from scratch with your with building your software skills, uh, why would you want to avoid working for companies that use legacy tech? <laughs> um, the I think that the, the trick with avoiding legacy tech, the reason why uh, companies that are stuck with legacy tech are a, occasionally a potential problem is the presence of legacy tech sort of suggests that maybe there are other engineering problems here mm -hmm. and the company is unwilling or unable to step away from stuff that's potentially broken. And a lot of people live in the, it ain't broke, don't fix it. But I think that some things have accrued so much technical debt that the entire staff is just keeping the legacy running. Mm. And that company, I think, technically is doomed. And I believe that they're really, even at the fairly high level, CEOs are, are planning exit strategies, hopefully to get bought by somebody because they've got this technological millstone they're dragging this technological anchor through the water hmm. forget the millstone metaphor nobody <laughs> understands that anymore but your this legacy technology is an anchor you are not lifting up off the bottom you're just dragging it around from place to place and i believe that um it's a, a symptom of potentially bigger management decision making problems wow yeah that's I mean, you would only be able to share the kind of knowledge that you're sharing right now with that, with having years of experience. And for that, I feel like me and everyone in the audience is so grateful. So th thank yeah. you. And it's surprising to me because when I was a consultant and doing COBOL related um, consulting and data warehouse consulting and those kinds of things, a lot of the companies were small-ish and struggling because they had a kind of a technology backlog that they didn't know what to do with. Uh, and they were spending so much of their effort, money, intellectual capacity, keeping the legacy going that they couldn't get outside the box to try something new. Mm -hmm. And it was pretty frustrating. And then two years sailing, come back and jump right into high tech. Um, it, I yeah. interviewed at a couple of places in Silicon Valley and my partner said, we can't move our boat to Silicon Valley. Uh, <laughs> San Francisco Bay is beautiful, but it's not very big really. And we mm. have a gigantic boat. We could have trucked it across the country. Technically it's possible to get there, but it's small. So we, we sort of focused on the East coast and wound up, you know, with Capital One, which is a gigantic tech company. Yeah. And not as encumbered by their COBOL legacy code. Yeah. 
they're entirely 100% in the cloud now. And um, I'm not sure where the COBOL is, but I believe that they have some cloud mainframe that is the last of the COBOL code as that spins down. I don't completely understand how that works because it's a different part of the, the enterprise than where I am. Yeah. Um, but that's the, the vague rumor that might be true, or maybe they've gotten rid of it and we're 100% <laughs> Java and Python in the cloud. I, I just don't know. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's it. The good news is it's like, you know, if you're detecting this in your own environment, I mean, you can don't, don't <laughs> jump ship. <laughs> <laughs> no, but seriously, like that's the good news, I think. Yeah. And I believe that you can make a big dent if you're in an organization that is struggling with legacy code and you yeah. can find ways to reduce the tech debt on that legacy code. I believe that rockets you right to the top of the organization because I think mm. that is where you make the big dent in that we can now make more progress on other problems because we're not burning all of our brain calories keeping the legacy running. Mm. That's, man, I, I guess that leads me into my next question, which is what advice would you give for someone that feels like maybe they're stuck at a company working with legacy tech? And it almost sounds like you just answered it. Like you could stick around or you could leave, but the, or, or what else? I don't want to, I don't want to answer the question for you. That's ridiculous. No, but I, I think the, the sticking around <laughs> thing, depending on how much you know about the enterprise. And in some cases mm. you may have deep knowledge, you know, all the people and you know, all the way the people are working with each other and you know, the decisions those people are making. Sometimes that's really, really valuable. And, you can leverage the technology to make people more effective at their jobs. That's the most wonderful thing possible. Mm. The hard part's getting permission to do it because when you have what we used to call KTLO, keep the lights on, when you have KTLO management that is only focused on keeping the lights on, it can be difficult to get permission to step outside the box, maybe mm. fail once or twice, but make a big dent. But I believe that some of that is a matter of making sure that management understands the real problem and the real impediment. And that can take some cycles to get people educated up and it can take some patience. Um, uh, yeah, that's, that's awesome. Thanks for sharing that. And what would be, if you had to start over again, what would be like the first tool you pick up starting over in software engineering or if I were starting over right now, I would pick up Python again, for sure. Okay. Um, I picked up Python centuries ago because <laughs> when I looked at, well, last millennium, but I had been looking actually closely at Java and Java 1.0.1 and those kinds mm. of things, really early Java releases. And I wondered what its competitor was. And Ruby had like just barely been announced. Perl had been around for a while. And this Python thing, the more I looked at it, the more I realized the barrier to entry is so low because Java, there's some tooling and you got to figure some stuff out and you got to get the object orientation. C++, it's a ton of tooling and you really have to get the object orientation or you'll never make C++ programs work. But Python, wow, even an idiot like me can get stuff to work right away. This is great. This is a language that's dumbed down for the not very gifted programmer in the world. I'm liking this. Mm. But I mean, you can solve serious business problems at the same time, like with limited knowledge, or do you feel that way? Absolutely. The, uh, there was a keynote at uh, one of the PyCons a couple of years ago, uh, an astronomer, Jake Vanderplas, was talking about the strength of Python and pointing out that you can sit the grad student down 
with some data sets and a Jupyter notebook. Now we use Jupyter Lab, but mm -hmm. here's your data set. Here's Jupyter Lab. Here's some pandas, some NumPy. Oh, wait, you're doing science. You're 15 minutes in and you're doing science because you've got data and you're analyzing it. And he said that is the lowest barrier to entry ever because now you can talk about the science part of what they're doing and not the technology part of why they're having trouble with memory or having trouble with pointers or allocation or something like that. No, 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 no. Let's focus on the real thing, taking all these different images and putting them all together and discovering whatever it is you're going to discover about your quasar or your orbits or whatever it is you're actually doing the real science because you're not mm. impeded by the technology. Hmm. Yeah, that's, that is awesome. What do you think makes the Python community so great? The, this was another keynote at another PyCon. Um, um, Guido Van Rossum, who invented the whole thing, pointed out that the reason he invented it, this was my understanding of the talk, but the, the reason he invented it was he wanted a way for people to collaborate and solve hard problems. Okay. And at the time, in the 90s, he said, what do people want to collaborate on? Probably something on the internet. This open source seems to be interesting. Hmm, programming languages. I wonder if there was a programming language people could collaborate around that they could then solve big, cool problems collaboratively. A programming language. Maybe I'll invent that. Hmm. It was designed to bring people together to collaborate, not solve a specific technical problem. Hmm. I, I, I mean, it got dusty in there. I, my, I was tearing up. It was like, oh my God, it's about bringing people together. That's crazy talk. Yeah. I, but I, I tell everybody that, that as far as I'm concerned, the, the big strength of Python, beside the low barrier to entry, is it was intended to build community. Hmm. I, I had no idea that was like baked into the DNA of the whole thing. Oh, yeah. So that's why the Python Software Foundation is huge. And when um, Guido stepped away from it and they had to figure out how to self-organize and whatnot, they, mm. you know, that people all said, well, you know, there's thousands of us. Uh, it's the fastest growing programming language. We probably ought to do this with a care to including as many people as we possibly, possibly can yeah. in our governance model. Hmm. Crazy. I mean, I I have been just drawn to it because of my the superpowers that I that were bestowed upon me. <laughs> yeah. Anti-gravity? Did you import <laughs> <Yeah>. anti-gravity? <laughs> I haven't done that yet, but I want to try it. <laughs> I tell everybody the first thing: do not import this, do not import anti-gravity. And then 15 minutes later, somebody <laughs> in the class will say, Wait, is it supposed to launch a browser? You imported anti-gravity, didn't you? Uh-uh. <laughs> That's hilarious. Yeah, I, uh, oh man, I, I love it so much. Like it's, it's been amazing. The experiences I've had, like interviewing people in the community and then just there's, but you can get real world stuff done. It's such a, you can make money with it. Like, I don't know what more you can want. I don't know. I, I, neither do I. That I, it is, you're right. The commercial potential is there as well as uh, low barrier to entry, uh, fairly easy to learn, all things considered. I mean, it's not scratch, but it's easy to learn. Yeah. What, what do you think was the biggest lesson you learned from the Bahamas trip that involved the scent of burning diesel fuel? <laughs> <laughs> this is a communication thing. I was asleep. Partner was on watch. 
Um, and so when it was, um, it, we switch, you know, you'll go wake the other person up because you got to maintain watch. We do four on four off. Okay. Um, they woke me up and said, I smell burning diesel. And, you know, I'm a little foggy. I had just been sleeping. The engine's been thundering away. At this point, it's been thundering away for at least 36 hours nonstop. Mm. But it's an 80 horse diesel engine. It's loud. You live right next to it. But it's designed to run for thousands of hours. Just keep putting fuel and oil in it. Don't worry about it. Okay. So, you know, of course you smell burning diesel. The, the thing, it's, it's been running for, for 36 straight hours and we still yeah. got another 12 to go. Um, <laughs> no, look in the engine room. And so, yeah, you look in the engine room and there's diesel spraying on the block. Oh, wow. Oh, boy. Oh, so that smell of burning diesel is not literally burning diesel because uh, unpressurized diesel doesn't burn very well, but it is diesel spraying on the block from a broken fuel line. Wow, that's unpleasant. And we're mm, nowhere. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, <laughs> my the gosh. Question is, how much fuel do we have and how quickly is it spraying on the block? Is there any way to stop it? And then looking at the charts, what's the closest thing we can get to that that's, um, you know, where there's going to be uh, repair parts and things like that? Uh, the correct answer was Stewart, Florida, but it's still... Uh, I think it was eight hours away at that point. So we tried to put some tape on it, but it's diesel fuel. It just dissolves the adhesive in the tape oh, wow. almost immediately. Oh, so gosh. it's spraying and spraying. So turn the, the bilge pump off so we don't spray diesel fuel into the Atlantic Ocean and get ourselves a $10,000 fine and then make for Stewart, Florida. And um, so that was uh, it. And then, oh, wait, we're not going to be there for eight hours. I'm only on for four. So I'll wake you up in four hours. because. <laughs> and then you're going to go for four hours and then wake me up so that we can do the entrance into. But there's no reason for everybody to stand around in the cockpit going, worry, worry, worry. Yeah. No, it, it, it's just back to four on, four off. Engines thundering away. We're losing fuel, but I, we have enough to get us to Stewart. It'll be good. We'll get there. Holy or God. we'll put the sails up and sail. But there was not a breath of air oh, at wow. night. The next morning, uh, for like two days, you know, if, if we had tried to sail in, we would have basically drifted up the U.S. East Coast um, in the Gulf Stream and probably wound up in Beaufort, North Carolina a week later. Oh, wow. It, it sounds like such an intense experience. Like I, I just like, I, I saw that, uh, twinkle of that in the pre-interview. I was like, holy shit. Like that is, oh man, I would just be, oh man, that's, that's intense. Just even it, think it is, about it. It is alarming when it happens, but then you have to review. And this is the same thing when your, um, cloud services fail, you know, uh, the 25th of November here, AWS had a problem with uh, the Kinesis streams, you know, stuff fails. You're all scrambling around. Oh, what do we do? What do we do? Are you going to go out of business? Mm. No, we have some pissed off customers, but we still seem to be running. So everybody take a breath. <laughs> this is nothing bad is happening. The boat is not sinking. It's not on fire. I'm not injured. Look, all 10 fingers. I'm happy. Yeah. So there's food in the refrigerator there's water in the water tank so i think on the whole this is maybe suboptimal but it's not anywhere near dangerous even mm. just yeah. unpleasant but it takes a while to step back from it and say oh wait there's no 
actual hazard here. Mm. Scary, but... Mm. And then... And then on top of that, you go and take your, your four-hour nap or whatever. You, you got to, yeah, because otherwise you're going to be so exhausted the next day because you, you don't get eight hours of uninterrupted sleep. It's four on, four off. So, yeah. you know, when you when it's time for your four, lay down, go to sleep. Yeah. Huh. You're going to roll around for a while going, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God. <laughs> then eventually you're going to pass out. And then, you know, an hour later, somebody's going to wake you up. And it's like, what? It's only been, oh, yeah, it has been the full four hours. So, yeah. <laughs> Pretty much, I'm I'm on call now. So okay. Oh wow, that's 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 an awesome story. I'm I'm so glad you shared that, and so we could talk about it because I, I just had so much fun hearing that. Mm-hmm. So uh, let's see. During so I know you said that you've gone through some of these recruiting processes. Uh, but you've been on both ends. You just don't really enjoy uh, like like actually facilitating it. I was just curious. So like, how do you recommend a, a a programmer go about making a good impression during the recruitment process or does everyone if they're nice they're they're golden in your books <laughs> well yeah for me if they're if they're reasonably cheerful and pleasant and and uh, and have some life experience which almost everybody does mm-hmm. um then then you know but i think that when you are um, do I don't know the interviewing? I'm not good at that because I, I just everybody's fun to me. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you are being interviewed, I really think the the important thing is to find out what problem they're trying to solve, even in the interview, uh, because. He, he, a lot of times you're talking to somebody who's trying to figure out if you've got the technical skills. You generally have those or you wouldn't be there. So now the question is, what are they really trying to do and what are you going to apply your technical skills to? Mm. I think that's the, the, the way to kind of elevate the conversation a little bit so that it is not merely writing fizz buzz yet again but you can talk about something like why are we writing fizz buzz or do you have a a more realistic problem maybe that's more like your actual business than fizz buzz Mm. that's powerful although i do like the fizz buzz problem i have to say (laughs) that i have i have oversolved the fizz buzz problem in the worst possible way (laughs) i i noticed you have a lot of uh like i stumbled upon your um oop open source OOP thing that was like all like casino games, I think it was. Yeah, that was my my first foray into books. Um, I wrote an entire design for a casino game simulator um, without the implementation, just all the design work so that you mm. could, as a programmer trying to learn OO design, here's it all laid out you still have to do the programming and so uh, people occasionally ask me about that going it doesn't actually do anything well no you have to write all the code i'm sorry i (laughs) i i guess i didn't make that clear in the preface but the reason i chose casino games the the and the reason why this hasn't ever been published anywhere else is because the the casino game thing is triggering for some people and and rightfully so so let's Mm. stay away from that but Casino games have a level of complexity that is finely, finely tuned to the human brain. This is the reason why they're addicting for some people. And the complexity is not so overwhelming that you can't get a grip on the problem. And it's not so trivial that it's fizz buzz. Mm-hmm. And this is both the draw, the allure, and the the problem with casino games is that they're uh, addicting because that level of complexity is like, very fine-tuned over the last few hundred years of casino gaming. Mm. Um, 
but I, and I think I had learned, used them as um, early forays into um, object-oriented design on my own because of that moderate level of complexity. You can understand them pretty well. The answers are predictable. You know when it's working when you can't find a way to win. That's the lesson. <laughs> you can simulate the willies out of the craps. You're going to discover that craps is a losing proposition. That That's the end of that. Roulette's even worse. And people tell you, well, you know, you, you have a pretty good edge with blackjack, only if you're counting cards, which is really a huge pain in the neck. So, yeah. um, nope, there's no winning. And the more you simulate, the more you discover <laughs> There's no winning. This is thermodynamics. <laughs> you are you are just losing energy every time, just sometimes more, sometimes less. Oh wow, yeah, that's. Uh, it, it seemed like a really cool learning resource. I was uh, I just kind of buzzed through it a little bit, but you called it OO design, so it's not really about the programming. It's more of like the intuition to build. Yes, okay. yes, to piece the components together, um, to figure out where the boundaries need to be drawn among components and things okay. like that. There's a big reworks um, element to this in that if you go through each of the chapters, by the time you get to chapter four or five or something, I am telling you to now delete some of the stuff you did in chapter two because it turns out it's a bad idea. <laughs> I could have told you that back in chapter two. I am a writer. I can foreshadow, right. but it's not the way real world design works. When you're mm. actually building stuff at your actual desk for money, you get, you know, three sprints into this and you realize, oh, garbage pail. This, we did this <laughs> wrong. This is, this hurts, but we have to gut parts of this application because yeah. it turns out Cost accounting doesn't work the way I imagined it did. Now that we have a prototype in front of users, they started telling us things that we never even thought were possible, but we both learned from the partial solution. The users learned how better to articulate their problem, and we learned better how to listen to their problem. And now we're talking more seriously about the real business application and our technologies. Hmm. Hmm. Man, hmm. that's... You know, the, this may have cropped up once or twice here, but I like now it's just like staring at me right in the face. Like, I don't know if you've written anything like this because I know you're a prolific writer, but I'm, I'm really curious now, like knowing, knowing what's in front of us as software developers and what's in our best interest, like how to proceed when the, the problems get tricky and stuff. It's like, it's like, okay, I know that documenting my code is a good thing. I know there's probably some other like, best practices that I could implement. That way, knowing that this there's a high probability I will be circling back around to this or I have no idea what I'm doing or I have a you know a 10% inkling of what I should be doing, but I must proceed. Like like what is the right way? Like if you if you're doing this in the dark or you can only see two steps in front of you, there's got to be a right way to do it where you're not sabotaging yourself. Or <laughs> like like yeah, I don't know if what what Riff off of what I'm saying here, I guess. <laughs> it, it, absolutely. The the best thing that you can do, um, we, we had a, um, I was on a, a project team for a little while. One of the senior vice presidents had told us um, at, at Capital One there, it was very important to make revocable decisions. Uh. And so, oh, yeah. Now, this is a weird <laughs> thing. Senior vice presidents don't give tech advice like that very often, but it's mm. a tech company. So, you know, this, we're all busy writing this down and our, you know, typing away in notes in, in our Macintoshes. But the, the idea of a revocable decision 
is back to my original point, permission to fail, that yeah. you're going to put this stuff down and you got to realize that you can't foresee the future. It's difficult, it being in the future and all. And so you got to leave yourself an out and then having a revocable set of decisions that, well, you know, this may not work. Therefore, I've boxed in. I've got a, a nice context around this. And because I'm in the bounded context, I can then pull this out and replace it with some other thing that will have functionally uh, same boundaries, but different mm. behaviors, because now I know what it should have done. Mm. So are these like, uh, uh, software design patterns that are good to master or what, or like ORM so you can swap out the back end, or is it, it's really like a little more nuanced than that? No, it's not more nuanced. You hit it solidly on the software design patterns that okay. if you've got a, a good grip on different software design patterns, it's easier to make revocable decisions because okay. the software design pattern literature is written around the idea of you're going to pull this out and replace it with something that is got a similar interface, but different behavior. So okay. yes, that software design patterns is really an important component for being able to make revocable decisions well. Mm. Okay, man, I'm glad we went there, man. I, that's, it, it never struck me until now. I mean, maybe, I feel like maybe it should have, but yeah, just be like, that sounds like a superpower in itself. If you just, you know how to navigate in the darkness like that, oh, yeah. you're going to oh, be yeah. great. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that, so one time we're um, sailing down, uh, this is in uh, coastal North Carolina, we're sailing down the Waccamaw River through, uh, and the Waccamaw River used to be rice fields. It's, it's mostly abandoned farmland now, but so there are trenches dug out of the river deep into the rice fields that used to be for irrigating the fields. For the most part, they're, it's just abandoned. It's just they're, they're trenches that somebody dug into the fields. But hmm. some of them, it turns out, are deep enough to fit our boat in. And oh, a wow. friend of ours, whose partner is an amateur ornithologist, and they have been everywhere taking pictures of birds in some pretty sketchball places. They had gotten their boat down one of these rice irrigation ditches, anchored for the night and said, actually, this is kind of nice. You're, you know, half a mile off the river, completely isolated inside this spot. And then there was this other story about the ornithology and the camera and the tripod and all these things, which we don't care about. I'm <laughs> not doing that. So we went in this little irrigation ditch and it wasn't bad. It was a little narrow for a boat our size and we're, mm -hmm. but we're floating. We never hit the bottom, but then somebody else came in behind us. They'd been following us all day saying, Oh, Hey, there's a big sailboat. Hey, they just went down this ditch. It's probably good. We didn't know they were behind us. And we, we, why do you think we know anything? We're just we're exploring. I mean, the, thank God we didn't run aground. We have no idea what we're doing. Right. But they bumped their keel on the way in because the tide was starting to fall. And there was it's not very deep out at the entrance. And we're like, oh, my goodness. We can only leave at high tide. Only leave at high tide. When is high tide? High tide is before dawn tomorrow, about 40 minutes before the sun comes up. Mm -hmm. So that means the only time we can leave this ditch is in the dark. Oh, wow. It's not like boats have headlights. So yeah. yeah, that was the good news is high tide actually takes a while. It's there's it a moment of highness, but it's it's pretty tall uh, for for 40 minutes either side. Mm -hmm. And what we think of as twilight 
is we generally call twilight is actually what the sailors call civil twilight. Nautical twilight is a half hour before that. And in an urban environment, you really can't tell the difference. But when you're in the middle of a rice field in North Carolina, <laughs> that nautical twilight, you can suddenly tell the difference that that's rice paddy, that's river. I can tell them apart. <laughs> Therefore, I am going to start the engine on my boat and I'm going to drive. And it is dark. Let me tell you, it is bodacious darkness. <laughs> But the water is a slightly different color of dark than the land is. And as long as I keep my boat in the middle of that slightly different color of dark, we're going to come popping out of here before the tide goes down into the main part of the river. And oh, thank goodness. <laughs> oh, that was exploratory. Yeah. And we were navigating in the dark, but we had uh, nautical charts and we had tide tables and accurate clocks and a compass. So it wasn't completely sketchy, but you know, it's sketchy. <laughs> Had a level of sketch involved. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And you go slow because there's the revocable decision. If we yeah. hit something, you throw the boat in hard reverse and back up. And mm. so that's one of those things that, that my partner's really careful about. Uh, how hard do you want to hit that? Oh, good uh, point. I don't want to hit that very hard, do I? Yeah. <laughs> Let me just back off to we're going idle speed that that you know <laughs> oh man that's that's great are we're, we're learning things and we're getting story time i mean what <laughs> more could we want people <laughs> that's great man um oh here's a here's a phone run for you how do you detect if a customer you're working with might have unrealistic expectations and what is your escape plan Ooh. Ooh, unrealistic expectations. Uh, yeah, that that one is um, that one. Um, I often think that unrealistic expectations surface very, very soon in in the conversation. And okay. I um, because I don't think they creep up on you. I think they start out that way. Mm. And so that I think is one of those maybe it's years of consulting and you get a sense of it, but I don't think so. I think the, um, I think it's, you have to be a little cautious about um, applying a certain amount of imposter syndrome, you know, you know, because if you're worried about your ability to do the job at all, maybe that's imposter syndrome because you are capable, but you worry, or maybe legit, their expectations are unreal. And so mm. it can be sometimes difficult to tell whether that's just purely an internal anxiety, your own personal imposter syndrome, or really they're nuts. Um, <laughs> and so you do have to, to spend some time reflecting on that. And the urge to get a billable gig will sometimes cause you to say, I'm just going to press forward with this and, and we'll see if we can turn it into something good. Um, mm. Yeah. But it wasn't until I took the two-year hiatus that I realized that maybe no is a better answer. Yeah. Oh man. Yeah, that's a great that's a great thing to keep in your in your wheelhouse of options. Like saying no, I'm I'm just finding out like even with the the limited time I have in my spare time, like the the ability to say no to things and yes to other things. It's like, mm -hmm. but detaching yourself from the sale is tricky. 
Oh, it's it's so difficult. And and I didn't do it for years and, and didn't even try. And then actually when when we had come back to shore and, and were working, um the um we, we had a little heart to heart about the whole, you know, because we we were basically living on our savings when we were living on the boat. And when those ran out, it was put on pants and get a job. So I had to, you know, <laughs> yeah. put on pants and get a job. And we looked at some some opportunities in Silicon Valley and, and like I say, we didn't like it. So we were back on the East Coast looking at things. Mm-hmm. And one of the things we talked about in during that process of of me finding a job and my partner finding a job was the answer to most questions at this point actually we want to be yes because it just doesn't matter how much trouble we get into. We've already been in enough trouble sailing offshore, having the diesel fuel spraying on the side of the engine block, sailing down the Waccamaw River in absolute darkness. You can't get in any more trouble. So yeah, let's say yes to things now, as opposed to thinking it through carefully. Is this really the right thing to do or not the right thing to do? So um, it was, you know, if it's completely sketchy, no, otherwise, yeah, why not? Okay. <laughs> That's that, that that just sounds amazing like uh like you're living you're living life like uh uh like a really like if there was levels to living life, like that's like a level that you would aspire to where you're like, yeah, I'm not going to, you know, like get, you know, bloody or hurt or whatever from this. Why not? Type thing. Yeah. I love it. <laughs> yeah. Doesn't seem to be illegal. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. I, I don't have to call my sister, the judge and ask, you know, geez, Elizabeth, would this be sketchy? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, I just, I love it because it's, it's like a level of freedom that, like you were talking about the boxes earlier, but sometimes it's like, we create this box. It's like a mental prison. And it's like, no, like you could start, you could start saying yes to things if, you know, if, if you would let yourself. Yes. I, that's what and I'm say no about. to things also. Like you said, yeah. some things in your personal life, like, no, nah, I really can't do that. That's it's just too much. Yeah. And so, yes, seeing it, it, it takes some, some distance to sort of see the box and, um, uh, and it's, it, it's not always easy to do. Yeah. Man, that's great. So uh, I just have a couple of closing questions here for you, a little bit of a grab bag. Um, What is your opinion on boot camps as a viable way of breaking into new high tech jobs if you have some Python experience or is it complete garbage? I have no idea. I've never been to a boot camp and I've never conducted one. So I, I have no useful opinion on that. Fair enough. What tips do you have for someone suffering from imposter syndrome? That one's tough also, uh, because I, you know, you don't, you don't climb onto a sailboat and, and try to go to the Bahamas <laughs> yeah. and, and then fret, am I capable of this? Am I not capable <laughs> yeah. of this? No, you, you pretty much got to have a certain amount of fortitude before you jump into that kind of thing. But yeah. I suspect many people who are wrestling with their own imposter syndrome need to have someone validate the things they've done with themselves, the things mm-hmm. they've done with their life. Because once you get a little bit of validation, it's a little easier to gain some perspective and say, oh yeah, I did do that. I, I did survive that. I did get through that okay. So I may think I'm not doing well, but you know, like the, the technology didn't fail. The company went out of business. Not my personal problem that the company went out of business. It was badly managed. And yeah. it, but some of those things, you know, people take them internally and it becomes part of you. And it's difficult to separate out that thing that came from outside that's sort of poisoning you from your own goodness. And mm. so it, it sometimes it helps to, to find someone to help you 
realize that. Uh, so sometimes you need to go, you know, talk to a counselor, talk to a psychologist or something and, and try to help disentangle the, those things or just have a lot of good friends. Um, sometimes that helps. Yeah, man. You know, the answer that you shared really uh, triggered something in me, especially when it comes like the whole validation piece, like maybe that's really what you're seeking for if you struggle with imposter syndrome. And it also reminds me of your casino story where it's like, we're so like, there's these things that we're kind of addicted to. And so I kind of wonder if like people that really struggle from this, are they addicted to like getting people's validation? And so, and so I'm wondering if you have any insight on like, you know, there might be a healthy level of that, but like, like what, what is your advice to someone who's like a, maybe addicted to like validation? Like just stop calling your sister up and asking for permission or what is the? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, those are, that's tough. That I, I, I really don't know about that. I, I hadn't really gone too far down that road because it's not, not a, problem I have and, and nobody in my family, my partner, not really. So mm -hmm. um, I don't, I don't run into it often enough to have a good opinion. Hmm. Well, thanks for letting me uh, like, so like just explore it here on my own with the sounding yeah. board. <laughs> no, yeah. you're, you're great. Thank you for sharing that. Um, what are some tips that you have for, oh, well, I guess this is kind of like the unrealistic expectations, but what about like working with people that are uh, unreasonable and how do you deal with them reasonably? Oh boy, that's tough. That, because like I say, um, the, when I was younger, I used to get uh, pretty bent out of shape about that kind of thing. Working mm. with unreasonable people was not very good at it. Um, and um, uh, nowadays I, because I have a little bit more distance and, and think of myself as, you know, just passing through that I'm in this marina for this season yeah. and we'll move on to another marina in another season. And the unreasonable people, they'll be here or maybe they'll move on before I will. Um, that it, I, I find it easier to sort of set them aside, minimize my time with them, try to avoid whatever destructive things they're doing and, and um, just sort of stay away from them. Yeah, excellent. Awesome. Uh, what have you, well, maybe you wouldn't classify your work workplace like this, but if you could imagine a place like this, like uh, what have you found works well when dealing with like high stress environments, like uh, workplace environments? Um, I've been blessed. Um, I mean, I used to work in some pretty high stress places with without a lot of support. Um, Capital One provides a tremendous amount of support. Um, you know, we're critical infrastructure. It's banking. And mm -hmm. so, you know, we, banks have to stay open, COVID or no COVID. So management recognizes that in order to, to make this work, there's going to have to be a little bit more flexibility than there had been. We're still a bank. We're still highly regulated. There's a tremendous amount of scrutiny on everything we do because mm -hmm. it is, after all, other people's money. But thank goodness management is, you know, take a little bit of time um, uh, you know, take some time each month for some self-improvement. Those sorts of things are, are now uh, on the docket as, as a sensible thing to do. So uh, mm. that has been a wonderful thing because the company has been focusing on keeping the stress manageable. Um, you know, if you've got small kids at home, if you've got small kids that might be sick or might not be sick, 
and you're trying to hold down a job, I just can't imagine what that's like. If you've got small kids and are unemployed, I can't imagine what that's like. That must be just awful. So mm-hmm. the stress levels there are through the roof. And yeah. um, I I just, all I can ever do is count myself as blessed that I happen to be working for a company enlightened enough to cut everybody a little bit of slack under the circumstances. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's amazing. So just see maybe the the silver lining or uh, nugget like bit you know just maybe seek out these. There are places you can work that aren't high stress. So if you're feeling like this, you know maybe go find a place that it, that just doesn't do that sort of thing. It, it's worth looking around. Um, my daughter in in um, in Las Vegas is a restaurant manager. And uh, when the COVID outbreak started, her restaurant was just shut down and everybody was fired the heck with you all. Um, She was pretty salty about that, I can imagine. (laughs) Um, But unemployment um, benefits in Nevada are pretty good and then they were extended. And it turns out places were actually remaining operating even though, you know, Las Vegas tourism is way, way, way down. But because she's a good restaurant manager, people were talking to her about, well, you know, when we get reopening, do you think you'd be available to, because our other manager left, you know, because of the COVID thing. And Mm. so it actually didn't work out too badly for her, but she knew a bunch of people and she left herself some space, took the maximum amount of benefits she could get out of unemployment to have some breathing room, stay at home, don't get any sicker. Yeah. Yeah. That's this, this is what we're up against here right now. So uh, that thanks for sharing that as well. That it makes a lot of sense. And uh, get, I've been pretty blessed during this time too. I haven't had any major hiccups because uh, oil and gas is also critical infrastructure. So, yeah. um, but man, I mean, I've seen some of these big oil companies that were leveraged up. They're letting go of people, you know, by the thousands and yeah, it's uh. Oh man, it's just so crazy. I've been through layoffs and like getting back to that whole thing you were talking about, about like, you know, projecting like your self-worth from these Mm. things that happen out there. Like during that layoff, I was so early in my career, like I really took it personal. I thought I was worthless, you know? And it really, it, oh man, I just, that, that I want nobody to, to feel like that. And I'm so happy that you shared that because it's so hard to detach yourself away from that but oh my god it is really because it is very it's a very personal thing that this is you know your job is yourself i mean that's one of the first questions you ask people what do you do yeah it's i know that that you 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 derive so much self-worth and self-importance from your job and then oh that was taken away Mm -hmm. but so what's left exactly that that you know that that yeah oh yeah that's tricky just you know, surround yourself with great people. That's my best message there. And like, oh yeah, very true. The lesson that, that I heard basically from that story with your daughter, like she knew lots of people and she left some breathing room. Like these are yeah. like build that network before you need it. Like, you know, <laughs> look look for these explore a little bit before your back's up against the wall. So you can really oh, yeah. there's so much knowledge in this uh episode. I'm so I'm so thankful you could come on here. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> so um okay yeah here's a here's a light one to kind of like wrap it up with (laughs) what's the best piece of advice you've ever received (laughs) the best piece of advice the best piece of advice i've ever received this is um this is challenging but 
I believe the best piece of advice I ever received was, this is sailing related, ease the sheets, knucklehead. Ease the sheets? Ease the sheets. So the when you're pulling the sails in, the sheets are what control the positions of the sails. So okay. if you're, you're sailing along um, pointed more or less close to the wind, the sheets are pulled in pretty hard. And that's when the boat starts to lean over. Heeling is what they call it. Mm -hmm. And the boat will lean more and more and heel more and more. And it turns out after a while, you can do the geometry on this, the area of the sail that's actually exposed to the wind is getting smaller because it's leaning over to the side. It's in the shadow of the boat after a while. And oh, you're really wow. not going anywhere. You're just being pushed down by the wind. You're not going forward. Mm -hmm. And and so this is where you have to ease the sheets that <laughs> you're fighting the wind. You're not sailing with the wind. The mm. wind has to go over the sails. It's a wing. And so easing the sheets to put the sail at the correct angle to the wind and the boat stands up straight. It starts going fast. Everybody's more comfortable. You're not scared anymore. Oh, ease the sheets, lighten up. You're going to just let them go out a little bit, let the line go, and things will work out better for you. Man, that's awesome. I might, there's a chance I might have to chew on that a little bit <laughs> to re really fully appreciate it. But I love yep. the, the whole um, uh, basically like uh, you had said something about like taking, taking it kind of easy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Lighten up, let go. Lighten up, yeah. Lap stretch out a little bit give yourself some space yep that's yep. that's if you're high strung like uh like me i guess like that's <laughs> that's tough man but yeah i i can appreciate it <laughs> i didn't say it the easiest that, advice no it's not easy advice at all yeah. but I, it was it's important advice and um it's difficult sometimes to to you know judge whether or not you're holding something too tight, trying to exercise too much control and make it do something it's just not going to do. No. Um, this is one of those micromanagement things that I've got a lousy team manager. Maybe the lousy team manager is trying to make the team do something they're not really completely capable of doing. <laughs> and so these are sometimes hard things to figure out that maybe this is the wrong team for this job or something about the team is wrong or something about the job is wrong. A lot of uh, things can go wrong that, that cause somebody to be hauling on those sheets as hard as they can. I'm going to make this boat go faster. Yeah. No, no, you can't make the boat go faster. The wind is what the wind is. The current is what the current is. The boat goes where it goes. Mm. Okay, so there's another little nugget I found there. If he doesn't know sailing, you could just outright yell at him, like, these are the sheets, knucklehead. <laughs> like, what are you talking about? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> I, I heard it once. I saw it in the movie. I watched Captain Ron several times. I'm pretty sure I understand boats. <laughs> Uh, that's cool, man. Thanks for sharing that. Uh, is there a uh, book or two that you think would be like really good read going into 2021? This could be like any book. It could be your book. I have been um, um, reading. We, we have a little book club at work and we've been reading The Design of Everyday Things by Dan Norman. It's a classic in design thinking. And um, it the... Um, the idea of having signifiers to make something visible 
especially when you're doing cloud computing? What is the state of that server in the cloud? Is it running? Is it not running? I don't even know. Ah, reading design of everyday things is causing us, the, the whole team, to think, oh, yeah, we need to make this more obvious, more plain, how it all fits together, what the state of it is, whether you push the door or pull the door, do you turn the knob, do you lift the handle, all these questions that uh, Norman points out in design of everyday things still apply to cloud computing, even though cloud <laughs> computing is pretty stinking abstract. Um, you still got to think about it like you're thinking about designing a coffee pot. You know, mm. how, how does this, where's where the best place to put the handle? Hmm. Cool. I, I love asking that question because I always get a new book. So thank you for <laughs> sharing. That's awesome. Alrighty. So we have talked about many things on this episode in my uh, one of my final questions here for you is what is the message that you want the audience to leave with? I really think that people who are doing technology work really need to leave room to fail. And mm. I think that fail fast, explore widely are the two big things that people need to, to spend more time doing. I, I, too many people are worried that something might go wrong and there's too many people in management positions that are worried that my programmers won't build the right thing perfectly the first time. The, you you got to get over that. They can't build the right thing perfectly the first time, no matter what you do. They got to build some stuff that's not quite right and then they have to refine it. So give them permission to fail, help them make revocable decisions and do uh, as wide an exploration as you're comfortable with. Take on a reasonable amount of risk. Don't go sailing up rice paddies in the Waccamaw River at night. <laughs> but on the other hand, you get to see some new things. And if you don't break <laughs> anything, now you know a lot of stuff you didn't know before. You know stuff about yourself, about your boat, about your ability to deal with um problems. So room to fail, room to explore, I believe are the biggest things that people need. Cool. That's awesome, man. Awesome. Well, this has been a great interview, at least in my own opinion here. And my last, very last question to you is, what is your call to action? Where do they go connect with you? What should they do next? I know you've got a new book coming out. The, um, the platform is yours. Yeah, everything I have is available on uh, Pact Publishing. It's it's almost all books uh, through Pact, and um, there's there's bunches of them out there. Um, I've got a couple of courses with LinkedIn Learning. Um, they're fairly easy to find because they're about Python and and solid design. It's only the two. Um, and yes, there's another book coming out. Won't be till first quarter, second quarter of next year. Uh, I'm only on chapter seven out of 14. So don't hold your breath on that. But, <laughs> but you can look for me there. Okay. And I'll make sure everybody's got the links on here. Is, is LinkedIn the best ways to to bump in you or where? LinkedIn where is, a, is a great way. Yes. That, that I, I respond uh, pretty much daily uh, to stuff on LinkedIn. Yeah. Cool. Awesome. Well, I'm satisfied with what we did here. Is there, did, did we, not to overturn any stones we should have, or what's your feeling? Oh, no, this was fabulous. This was okay, absolutely cool. fabulous. And thanks for giving me the leeway to tell uh, random sailing <laughs> stories. Oh, yeah, you got it, man. All right, well, that's the show, folks. We'll talk to you soon. Peace out.